I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Matt Weingarten. I'm Ida Stepman. And I'm Will Chamberlain. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Make sure to subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. It has been a difficult couple of weeks, of course, for everybody in Israel, for many people involved with this podcast, and we have been praying very hard. We are eager to bring you some programming today to break down all of the news that's elapsed since we last talked, and it is is truly an incredible amount of news. I'm going to start uh, by talking about actually something that's uh, evolving as we are taping this on Tuesday morning, which is the speaker vote scheduled to happen just a just a couple mom- moments from when we're we're taping this. But obviously, there's a lot of chaos to talk about in the House of Representatives. Maybe fun chaos, depending on your perspective. Uh, we'll then talk about the other massive news um, in addition to the new war of course, that is roiling global politics. We're going to be talking about the new gag order against former President Trump. We're going to be talking about Joe Biden's trip to Israel. Ben is handling the Trump gag, gag order. Will is handling the trip. Um, and Inez is going to talk about wars of necessity versus wars of choice. So let me start by talking about the, the drama as it pertains to the speakership battle. Obviously, House Republicans ousted Kevin McCarthy. He gets in on 15 ballots. Basically, everyone knows in January he's the only choice. So the Freedom Caucus wing tries to extract as many concessions some very meaningful, some less meaningful, but still uh, have proven to be pretty important over the last year, um, including committee seats. Then, of course, the motion to vacate, uh, which allowed Matt Gates and a group uh, to push them out, uh, push Kevin McCarthy out finally um, after all of those months. So that happened. Um, and now Republicans have been scrambling to find somebody else to replace Kevin McCarthy. Steve Scalise, who is battling blood cancer, did not work out. He was voted yes. He got enough notification. He got enough uh, confirmations in uh, a internal conference vote. Uh, it didn't go to the floor. Jim Jordan, we're waiting to see if he goes to the floor successfully today. Uh, I just want to say before I kick it open to the group, uh, from my perspective, that is a massive win for the conservative movement. The idea of a Jim Jordan speakership just a few years ago when it was floated and he may have gone against Kevin McCarthy is basically a conservative fantasy. Uh, This idea that you could truly have a conservative speaker of the House, not somebody who, like Kevin McCarthy, is strategically uh, allied with conservatives, but somebody who is a sort of dyed-in-the-wool movement conservative like Jim Jordan. Now, I think we'll have some conversation here about the, the reality that Jim Jordan is really the only movement conservative who could be put in this position because he has made some concessions himself personally uh, as he has allied himself with leadership over the last couple of years. We talked here many times uh, about Rachel Bovard's personal vendetta um, against Jim Jordan's office when it came to antitrust um, and whether that was part of these concessions that Jim Jordan made to sort of uh, have a, a cozy relationship with leadership. On the other hand, just this is this is sort of politics 101. Uh, his cozy relationship with leadership has, uh, I think, made for certain wins. Um, so uh, you can't. It's almost like you can't have one without the other. But maybe some of you guys disagree with that. Um, I, I think it is. You know, for for all of the different decisions Jim Jordan has made in the last couple of years, uh, the the person that Jim Jordan is overall in the aggregate as Speaker of the House is is a big win uh, for the conservative movement because. Now now the establishment and their allies are desperately fighting um, to have anyone but Jordan uh, because they know he's a, a threat to them. Basically, um, you know, even if the conservative movement wishes he was a bigger threat, they know, uh, you know, that that he at least threatens some of their monopoly on power uh, on the the leadership side in the House. So with that, I'll kick it open to the group. Um, yeah, I, I got to say, first off, I'm, I'm very glad Elon Musk bought Twitter for a lot of reasons, but I think a Jim Jordan speakership would have been much more of a problem in a world where we still were dealing with this massive threat to free speech and social media. We're dealing with it somewhat, but the fact that we have one platform where we're basically set means that the rest of Jordan being good on a lot of other policies and the fact that he's not good on big tech um, will matter less, I guess would be the way to think about it. That said, I don't think he's actually going to do it. I, I mean, my reading of on Twitter and from people I've talked to is 
he's he doesn't have the votes there it looks like he's going to get five no's and i'm not surprised like there is this moderate faction of the party that definitely feels very resentful of the way things have gone down right they didn't feel like they should have have to give it up mccarthy why you know from their perspective he had 96 percent of the caucus and he won the majority he won the caucus vote by 85 percent something and back in january so you know they probably feel pretty resentful of seeing well okay you got rid of mccarthy and then you turned down scalise who that also had won the majority of the caucus and now you're insisting we all get on board for jordan and you're calling us traitors for not doing so like i could see how that wouldn't sit well with them um and I don't know, I, I sort of have a lingering suspicion we're going to end up right back where we started, uh, either with like McCarthy or a temporary speaker, McHenry. Um, so that's I, I, I suspect that there isn't anyone in the current, there might not be anybody in the current caucus who can get to 17. There might not be a single person with just Republican votes. So I think I think we got to really worry about that. Uh, I I realize that this is this is, um, you know, something that people think is a joke. I'm not suggesting it as a joke i think actually one of the best things for the republican party would be to have donald trump as speaker um exactly because no one can vote against him um it would it the job of a speaker uh is is to maintain discipline in, in their caucus um because of very real uh reasons and i'm usually on the side of of sort of the the, the insurgency conservative insurgency back since my tea party days and in, in the 2010s right i think there is there are not just like superficial but very deep critiques of republican leadership over the years we've made many of them on this podcast um the the reality is that you still need to have discipline in your caucus to get anything done and and that the divisions between republicans have gotten to the point where it's not clear that anyone can do that um there is an obvious person who can, and and that's Donald Trump. Not because I think he's some great legislative, you know, guy, um, but because exactly he he has that discipline over the Republican Party as much as sort of the the um, in some ways the intellectual arm or the never Trump arm of of the intellectual right despises that fact. The only person who can command loyalty from the Republican. Uh, caucus uh, generally from the Republican Party is Donald Trump, and actually for that reason, I think he, he would he would be um, a good Speaker of the House, and it wouldn't necessarily at least temporary Speaker of the House. It wouldn't necessarily prevent him from from running. Um, it would be the first time in our history that a Speaker would not be a member, um, but it is constitutional to do so, and I actually don't think it's a bad idea. In a very like, I, I'm not joking. I'm not being ironic. I actually do think Donald Trump would be a great Speaker of the House. Um, on on the on the deeper point though, uh, I've generally been in Emily's camp about like I, I'm okay with the chaos showing through, right? Um, I think there is chaos in 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 the Republican Party and in the country. There are deep divisions in the Republican Party and in the country. Um, I'm not opposed to those becoming visible, and I think some of the sort of pearl clutching about it uh, is is disingenuous in the sense that what they really want is not a return to a real unity that's based on a unity of purpose, um, but a faux a sprinkle of civility on top of those very real divisions uh, that ignores the existence of those divisions and in fact shoves them aside and shoves the interests of Republican voters aside in an attempt to maintain that kind of, of surface level um, order and stability. And I, I think generally uh, it's fine that that disorder is showing through. That being said, and I'll get to this in my segment, you know, there, this does seem to be to be a bit of a, a get serious uh, moment, not just for the United States and for the world, um, and and it is obviously indicative of of a deep problem and rot that there is no Speaker of the House in America um, at a time where it, it seems obvious that not only is there um, you know war on the European continent, there's war in the Middle East and will be war in the Middle East, um, but we are moving towards. It just feels inexorably towards some some form of possible great power conflict, um, and and that anything at any time could set that off, right? Whether it's Taiwan or or anything else, um, and and so it seems like a very uh, something very revealing about how bad the the rot in the United States is that uh, we we cannot even have a speaker of the house uh, on on a fundamental level. So uh, obviously, we can talk about on the politics and on the merits who the ideal speaker is. But I do think it's worth noting that in terms of someone who 
bridges the chasm that we talk about every single week between where rank and file Republicans and conservatives are versus where our uniparty ruling class is uh, on ideology, on merits. Uh, Jim Jordan would look like a fantastic victory in bridging that chasm. And also to the extent that in reality, while the House does control the power of the purse and originates critical legislation uh, in a government that is still dominated, obviously, by Democrats in the Senate and Democrats in the White House, Jordan is arguably bar none the best communicator. And that might matter more than the substance of policy coming out of the House to some extent. So those would look like victories. Um, I make no predictions on how this is all going to go down. I've seen that uh, Kevin McCarthy, I think, predicted that Jordan would be the speaker. Don't know if that's the case. There were interesting debates that were had uh, that I heard among conservatives uh, when I was down briefly in the swamp a week ago about some arguing that Scalise might have been better for the conservative movement because uh, conservatives could kind of hold his feet to the fire and push him in directions that uh, he might not otherwise want to go. But with a Jordan who is going to have to obviously make concessions to the mod so-called moderates and squishes, uh, that's going to provide have to provide cover, unfortunately, for things that we don't want to swallow. So, you know, we can debate all that. Uh It'd be, it'll be interesting to know who the people obstructing this now, kind of the converse of before you had conservatives who had disproportionate power. Now you have moderates who have disproportionate power, who their guy is going to be if Jim Jordan doesn't win in this massive push that we've seen in recent days for the party to coalesce and kind of the whipping effort for support. And then if it did fall to Donald Trump, um, you know, I think that there's there's some merit to what Inez put forth. I do wonder if you would have still whoever the modern day version of Liz Cheney would be and others that would oppose uh, for purposes, for political purposes, for purposes of name ID and such, uh, even if it made them targeted by the rest of the party uh, in their narcissism. Uh, and then also to bridge and segue perfectly to my segment, which is next, what happens to the gag order if there was a speaker, Trump? Uh, something for the lawyers and parliamentarians here to uh, opine on, I guess, after I jump into my segment. Um, so as Emily laid out up top, uh, former President Trump, leading candidate Trump on the Republican side is now subject to what's been described as a quote unquote limited gag order. Um, if you look at the precedent for gag orders, attempts to impose restrictions on speech of uh, elected officials or serious candidates, this has, like everything else with regard to the lawfare against Donald Trump, broken precedent, created, by the way, all new precedent that we can imagine could be twisted and warped in horrific ways going forward, especially as our legal system uh, circles the drain. Um, in terms of the actual substance of the order itself, which was actually just publicly issued right before we came on today, the order calls for, I'll quote here, all interested parties in this matter, including the parties and their counsel, are prohibited from making any public statements or directing others to make any public statements that target, one, the special counsel prosecuting this case or his staff, two, defense counsel or their staff, three, any of this court staff or other supporting personnel, which of course includes the judge, or any reasonably foreseeable witness or the substance of their testimony. To me, the two kind of major things to highlight there are how do you define targeting? What does it mean to target the special counsel prosecuting this case or his staff? Does that mean you can't talk about their records? Does that mean you can't talk about their leaking like a sieve in the middle of a case? Does that mean you can't talk about political contributions that they've made or that their spouse has made? And clearly not, by the way, on the spouse point, because uh, during the back and forth on this, basically uh, Trump's team was told, you know, comments about the political inclinations of Jack Smith's wife are totally off base, really based on the kind of principle of speech that the court interprets to be potentially creating inciting harm or potentially linked to harm uh, has to be silenced. Um, so this, of course, you know, follows in the same kind of paradigm that we've talked about in a slew of other contexts of Speech the regime doesn't like is harmful, therefore it can censor you, whether it's quote unquote mis-dis and malinformation or inflammatory words 
in an expressway political case and with the politics, obviously illustrated by the fact that these kind of charges have never been applied before and twisted before in this kind of way to go after a leading candidate by his successor's Justice Department. Um, during the back and forth, the hearing, which ultimately culminated in this order, uh, Judge Chutkin said, quote, I will not impose any additional restrictions on statements criticizing the government generally, including the Biden administration or the Justice Department or statements communicating that Mr. Trump believes this prosecution to be politically motivated. So that's her hedge. The Overton window, the DOJ has so far shifted the Overton window that Chutkin's order looks more reasonable than what the DOJ was asking for, but still moves it, opens it wildly relative to our understanding of free speech. Because, of course, this is an expressly political case in the middle of a campaign with someone vying for the presidency. Uh, her argument during that back and forth yesterday, Judge Shutkins, was critical First Amendment freedoms do not allow him to launch a pretrial smear campaign against participating government staff, their families, and foreseeable witnesses. But no restrictions that we've seen on the converse of that, the attacks on Trump, of course. So, you know, there are obvious questions here about uh, how far will this order be stretched to constrain Trump and his surrogates? Uh, what are the penalties that could potentially be imposed? Those are not laid out in this order, but I think precedent shows, or maybe it's the DC code shows that typically this is uh, fines or perhaps worse criminal sanction or worse sanctions rather. It's worth noting here, and this is something that Mike Davis uh, pointed out on Twitter, I think yesterday or early this morning, that the criminal rule for DC federal court calls for potential gag orders when the parties involved are likely to interfere with the rights of the accused to a fair trial by an impartial jury. So essentially, the argument that Chutkin and the DOJ makes here is that Trump has to be silenced to protect himself. That That is what they would argue. Uh, that's the insanity of putting up this kind of gag order in unprecedented fashion, an unprecedented case. Uh, we can walk through kind of, you know, some of the back and forth that happened during uh, this hearing yesterday. Um, I think Trump's counsel made this argument, you know, President Trump is being restricted from speaking out on the issues of the day. All of the issues in this case are inextricably intertwined with campaign issues. Presidential competency, the role of prosecutors, the role of the DOJ, the role of political interference, the issue of appointment of judges, every single issue that relates to this case also has political implications. And the judge basically shunted that aside with some caveats there. Um, a few quotes that reflected kind of the contempt of the judge. She, she said to Trump's counsel, looking through the transcript this morning, uh, I do not need to hear any campaign rhetoric in my courtroom. Uh, this trial will not yield to the election cycle in response to Trump's counsel talking about the fact that the judge set the schedule to run right up against the primaries. Uh, in response to the unprecedented nature of censoring a candidate in the middle of the campaign, quote, there are a lot of things that have never happened before, Mr. Loro. She also said, you keep talking about censorship like the defendant has unfettered First Amendment rights. He doesn't. Uh, when Trump's counsel, Mr. Loro, said, quote, George Orwell would have a field day with what we're hearing from these prosecutors, Chutkin snarkily replied, George Orwell would definitely have a field day. Um, so and we can, you know, keep go through, going through chapter and verse. Um, but essentially, you know, what this amounts to is once again, you know, an unprecedented political move that the court is dressing up in law. Um, and so this leads to questions, I think a couple questions. First, your general impressions of the magnitude of this order. But then uh, where does this go next from a legal perspective in terms of the appeals process? Is there some kind of emergency appeal to get this up to the Supreme Court? And then how should the conservative movement respond generally to what this judge has done? And then I guess even more broadly to the notion that you know, gag orders can now be slapped on presidential candidates, including leading presidential candidates. Yeah, um, I mean, the obvious conclusion here is this is why you don't prosecute the domestic opposition <clears throat> right before the election. Right. So, you know, in some context, some of this is reasonable. If you think about like a typical trial, right, you obviously uh, it, it, there are reasons to impose this kind of order on a defendant. Um, but. That's exactly why this is so incompatible and why there's a 250-year norm in the United States not to prosecute the political opposition uh, and why it was, as we all pointed out, you know, th this crossing of the Rubicon moment that is incredibly – that leads 
in inexorably too all of these these uh, problems, right? This conflict between the the law and like <laughs> higher law of constitutional law and of of even beyond the constitution, just the basic presumption that we have, you know, two parties in the United States that are are holding a free and fair election for the American people to choose between. If we saw this kind of thing happening in a foreign country, we would not consider them a democracy. Um, the, the prosecution of the political opposition, the gagging of a political opponent uh, during the middle of an election season. Um, you know, so in terms of the law, there are obvious First Amendment implications. Um, there's there's a timing aspect of, uh, that Ben mentioned about how fast this gets appealed to the Supreme Court. There's also the problem that, you know, courts even the, the, even if the First Amendment implications of this are clear, this is clearly a political issue, and courts have historically not wanted to dive in. And I'm sure Will Will can, um, you know, elaborate on this more. But uh, courts historically have tried to avoid getting in the middle of clear political questions um, because of of the nature of of the balance of power between the judicial branch and um, the the elected branches, right? The the legislature and and the presidency. Um, so. In this act of of prosecuting Donald Trump, you can see how the people who who are constantly whining about norms and norm breaking have broken the most fundamental norms in not just like the American constitutional norms, but even one step deeper than that, like basic democratic and republican norms um, of of any country that hopes to call itself a free democracy. And and this is this is the consequence, right? Like this conflict between uh, you know, the, the the sort of rules of the trial and the inability to run a presidential election within that, that's exactly why you don't prosecute your political opposition. Anyway, that's yeah. my my two cents on that. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll try to be uh, quick. So it's not, I guess I wouldn't say there's a political question issue because it's, it's a battle between the executive, it, like the decision to prosecute is an executive one, but yeah, Leading no, I'm, aside, I'm not talking about the doctrine, by the way. I'm, I'm not, talking, but I'm saying the general, so not the specific political questions doctrine, but the general reluctance from whence that doctrine springs to get sure. involved in something that's so explicitly political. Sure, I think I'll make two very quick points. Um, beyond, you know, obviously the the appalling First Amendment implications of the the order itself. The first is there's a very reasonable probability that Donald Trump can't comply with this order, and as a result, be remanded into custody. People need to. Think hard about, he needs to really realize he needs to keep his mouth shut. I've seen people say that he should defy this order. That's nonsense. You've never felt concentrated sovereignty like you have if you've been in front of a judge who has the ability to toss you in jail for contempt that very moment. Highly recommend he doesn't defy the order, and I worry that he won't be able to. Second, think this is just part of the general path that we see that the odds that Trump is a convicted felon by the time of the general election next, next year is around 90%. Um, it's appalling that they have him, but I feel like they haven't checkmated. There's not a lot that can be done because even if there's an appeal on this gag order issue, there's not going to be a substantive appeal on the substantive case available until after sentencing. So the idea that, you know, I mean, I am very, very, very worried about the consequences for our party more broadly and the possibility of just a massive democratic sweep in 2024 as a result of the fact that they've got our guy in a situation where he's likely, the likely nominee is also likely going to be a convicted felon. Um, at the time of the general election. And I don't know if the right has really fully grappled with that fact. Well, and things get scary from there too. I, I was reading, but this is just, I have a very quick point to make. Uh, make. I was reading a piece uh, that I, Julie Kelly wrote, I think for real clear about quotes from the judge, uh, Chutkin, uh, about Donald Trump that are just so unusual and irregular, um, even though that they're in the course of her duties, uh, as a judge in this particular case, they are, I mean, there's just, <laughs> it, it is pretty obvious that the spirit of uh, the statute that that creates grounds for recusal in those cases is being, you know, is, is very much in question when you read those quotes directly. Uh, and so the, the possibility that not only is he convicted felon, but he could actually serve time in any one of these cases. Um, I think this case is particularly threatening what we saw on January 6, which was horrific and divided the country in, in so many ways, continues to this day, in this case, to divide the country in so many ways, um, is going to feel, if Donald Trump goes to prison, if Donald Trump, Trump is a convicted felon, and it, it does seem like that's where we're, we're just careening down that slippery slope, 
um, it, it's going to seem like it was a preview. Uh, there, there's just no sort of uh, harmonious way for the country to come to peace um, with with that in the uh, sort of on the horizon. So with that, we're going to turn the rest of that the show, uh, the second half of the show, and, and dedicate it to important conversations about the savage butchery of Israelis. Uh, and with that, I'm going to toss it to you, Will. Yeah, so I'm, I'm focused specifically on this Biden trip that's coming up, Biden deciding to go to Israel and sort of what the American role is with regard to how Israel is conducting its affairs vis-a-vis uh, -vis the massacre on October 7th. Um, so Anthony Blinken's currently in Israel. Apparently yesterday he had a seven and a half hour meeting with the war cabinet and he just announced that Biden would be coming in um, tomorrow, I believe. And the, the publicly stated rationale for Biden's visit is things like he's going to show his support of Israel, show that we will provide whatever they need in terms of resources, uh, deter other countries from getting involved, blah, 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 blah. But at the end, you get the sense that, you know, what, what's the real reason? And it's like they they talked a lot about, oh, we need to make sure there's this humanitarian corridor and that aid will be able to get to Hamas. And, and you're just also thinking to yourself, wait a second, didn't we had a 24 hour deadline imposed? on people to evacuate North Gaza about three or four days ago. That deadline's expired by quite some time. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, Biden could do these things from DC. It's not necessary that he go to Tel Aviv or to Jerusalem to like ex express his support. It's, I don't think that the Israelis have requested it. What you get the sense, um, and this would, this rhymes with history, is that the Americans are pushing for restraint. Like I, that's, I, I don't know if they're, they're certainly not doing it publicly because I think it would be horribly unpopular, but I, you know, the, the vibe I'm getting from reading the news is that the Americans are pushing for restraint. It's not the first time they've done that potentially to Israel's detriment. I think historically the 1967 war is a really good example where, um, you know, the Egyptian army had blockaded, the Egyptian Navy rather had blockaded the Straits of Tehran and blockaded um, Israel's access to the Red Sea, clear act of war. Israel wanted to strike, and, and it was the United States that was trying to restrain them from doing so. I wouldn't be surprised if we're seeing something very similar right now, um, where, where the United States is trying to say, okay, well, you need to wait till every single civilian is out. You need to wait until, you know, you know as long as it's necessary before you launch a ground in action. And the reason that's so troubling from the Israeli point of view, one would think, is because Gaza is a very dangerous place to invade. It's a, it's an urban area with a lot of you know, you know, sniper traps and hidey holes, and allowing Gaza to just chill and wait and prepare um, their defenses is a terrible idea and puts at risk Israeli lives. And you know, the Israeli government's obvious first obligation is to look out for their the well being of their citizens and their soldiers. Um, so I really am quite concerned about this, and hope that you know there will be a pushback on the United States meddling in this, because I, I believe that the, the morally correct as well as the national conservative position on this is that Israel should be allowed to do what it will to respond to this horrible massacre on their civilians and to ensure that it doesn't happen again. And that the role of the United States should simply be to be, go ahead, do what you will, do what you think is necessary. We will, you know, we are not gonna sit here and try and constrain you um, in any way. Um, that's what I think. And I'm happy to pass that on to the group. Yeah, and I know, uh, especially Ben has, put a lot of thought into the question of Iran and Rob Malley, uh, but it's just very, very hard, and it should be very hard for Americans to take seriously the position of the, the Biden administration when there are so many pieces of evidence that the sort of Iranian sympathizers who thought that they could usher in this new generation of foreign policy by having um, this, this sort of unusual, unorthodox uh, approach to diplomacy in the Middle East, and particularly with Iran, uh, are still running American foreign policy. I mean, Jake Sullivan himself is highly dubious given his own record of uh, cavorting with such people um, and, and flirting with these ideas himself. Uh, so when you have reports like the one about Rob Malley and the, I mean, the incredible reporting from Tablet about how there's basically um, an Iranian spy network um, of people who are very sympathetic to Iran, 
uh, within the Biden administration right now, uh, people who are, are actually in the government right now who are corresponding based on email evidence. Again, this is not pie in the sky, abstract theorizing, uh, but email back and forth with people in the Iranian government about what they should do. Uh, should they go to this conference, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that should make it very hard for Americans to trust, even if the Biden administration is saying something good publicly, uh, trusting that. Uh, it should be very difficult for all of us. And I think that's a kind of scary place to be in, um, not just if you're Israel, uh, but if you're Americans, uh, given the sort of feel of almost 1913 that's in the air, or some people consider the, the 1930s that's in the air right now. And you look at some of the, co the coalescing of major alliances, uh, Russia, China, Iran, um, and you know where that's kind of on how that's unfolding at a pretty rapid and disturbing clip right now. Yeah, to, to put a maybe a, a sharper jab on um, a more explicit jab on what Will was uh, was hinting at, um, it, it, it does seem interesting that people who generally are uh, in favor of the United States having a smaller footprint in the world, um, non-interventionists uh, are, are here uh, on the side of intervening uh, to constrain Israeli action. There's there's a strange little irony there. Um, look, I, I think this shows that despite a very strong statement, actually surprisingly strong statement early on um, from the Biden administration and from other members of the Democratic Party, I would would also say like my, my mayor, um, Eric Adams, did, made a very, very strong and very morally clarifying statement um, after this attack. So there was sort of some some Democratic uh, officials pushing back against their left flank on on this issue um, in, in a morally clear way. Nevertheless, um, th this not just Democrats, but I think a large part of the foreign policy establishment, um, and, and I'll get, get to why I think that in a minute, but a large part of the former foreign policy establishment and unfortunately continuing foreign policy establishment uh, does not seem to have learned much from the last 20 years. And, and here, um, you know, I've, I've in on this podcast and elsewhere, I've, I think I've, I've been more, uh, open to the need for American intervention to protect what I see as American interests in different parts of the world than, um, perhaps some of my, my co-panelists at times. Um, but there, there is something that I think is the very clear lesson of the last 20 years, a deeper lesson about, about human civilization and politics. And that, that, that should be, um, this this fundamental idea that that in fact uh no that the flame of liberty does not beat in or or uh, burn in every human heart to to paraphrase George W Bush's early um statements um in terms of of going into Iraq and Afghanistan right no like trying to drag uh one level of civilization 300 years into the into the future um in, into enlightenment policies that the west themselves west ourselves uh sometimes doubt now um, is is a complete failure. And if if you similarly, if you don't understand the contours of this conflict, um, you cannot understand the contours of this conflict uh, without understanding that Hamas has considerable support among Palestinians. So George W. Bush and Condi Rice came out uh, in the last week and said essentially, uh, and something that that Israeli PR sometimes says as well, uh, that that uh, essentially that Hamas is sort of a foreign dictatorship. Um, that that does not represent uh, the, the views of the, the people of Gaza. Now, I want to be very, very clear when I say that that an election tomorrow uh, in in Gaza would likely elect Hamas, and that there's enormous support for what what Hamas has done in Gaza. That does not obliterate the distinction between being a combatant and a civilian. So you can you can you can believe in the annihilation of Jews in Israel. That doesn't make you a combatant uh, in in the laws of war, right? Um, as opposed to a civilian. But in terms of the moral contours of of this, um, I think that fundamental understanding is what's leading through to what Will is talking about with with the Biden administration trying to restrain Israel here um, and and prevent them from from actually. Uh, using their full force, and I'll talk more about this in my segment because I, I, I think um, it's related, but uh, prevent them from using that that full force um, it is a, a lack of understanding, a lack of clarity about what the contours of this conflict actually are, um, and and a clinging to this notion that in fact there's there is some uh, there's no relationship 
between the ideology, the religion, the commitments of, of um, Palestinians in Gaza and what happened last weekend, that there is no relationship and essentially that they are innocent victims of, of, um, of Hamas as, as much as Israelis are. And that, that like mentality, I think, is what goes into the Biden administration trying to, to restrain Israel. I think it goes into the remarks that George W. Bush made this week, that Condoleezza Rice made this week, this, this underlying lack of understanding, or I don't even want to say lack of understanding, inability, ideological inability to clearly see what the situation is with regard to, um, you know, Israel and 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 uh, as a representative of, of sort of Western civilization in this, and simply um, a, a, a sort of uh, hatred that is not easily packaged in oh well they want this the this contours of the Palestinian state or that contours of the Palestinian state like we can all sort of have this negotiation um, in, in that that is a very like Western mentality that needs it doesn't need to die in the West. But it it needs we need to be more clear eyed about the fact that there are plenty of civilizations and peoples in the world who do not think like us, who fundamentally do not think like us. And I think that kind of naivete still runs through the, the alleged adults in the room in our foreign policy establishment. So uh, I'll be brief here and then pick this up in final thoughts. Um, I would I would refer folks to uh, my piece in The Federalist today where I write about kind of a three point plan for pursuing the U.S. national interest, uh, including because let's not forget, and this should be front and center, yet is not. Not only were dozens of Americans killed in Israel, but Americans are currently held hostage right now. And I don't see, by the way, the hostage crisis day 10 graphics on every single network. Uh, curious that. Um, to Inez's point, um, I, I will make the argument, and I've been open about this here and elsewhere, uh, I don't think that it's not learning the lessons among much of our foreign policy establishment, or certainly not the decision makers here. I think it is a conscious choice to aid, abet, and enable the world's leading Islamic supremacist regime, Iran, and all of its proxies. And I don't think it's an issue of incompetence. I think it's actually malign but a confusion between what is malign and what is actually in U.S. national interest. And that's a much broader conversation. We can pick it up later. Also, just as a and so to Will's point, I will say I believe that the Biden administration strategy here, to the extent there is one, is to deter Israel, not Iran. And this is a delay, delay, delay tactic. And I'll go through the straitjacket that is sort of being built right now and the boxing of Israel killing Israel with rhetorical kindness, but actually constraining it so that it can't pursue its strategic objectives, which not only is going to redound to Israel's detriment, but ultimately our detriment as well. Last but not least, on a really narrow point, uh, since Inez brought up the support for Hamas, there is polling uh, in the Palestinian Arab world. And according to the last polling I saw, and we can link to this, uh, and this is from a recent poll from this summer, I believe, uh, the public preference for Hamas over Fatah is plus 10 among over a thousand Palestinian Arab adults who were surveyed. Beyond that, Hamas's leader rated rates at plus 23 over Mahmoud Abbas to be president. So that's something worth keeping in mind when there's an attempt to de-link uh, the jihad that has occurred from the populace from which the jihadist groups has sprung. All right, back to you, Inez. Yeah, and I'll I'll, I'll maybe uh, cut some some moments off my segment because I've I've definitely uh, took a lot of time in the last one, but I, I think it's a related topic. I, I actually just want to commend everybody's attention or bring everyone's attention to a piece that another co-host of mine uh, on a different podcast, Richard Hanania, wrote on his Substack, which I think um, is is very clarifying. So he he notes that there's quite a bit of um, of data that shows essentially that in the last fifty to sixty years. Um, as a trend starting uh, in in the 1800s, uh, strong powers, when going to war against weak powers, are increasingly the losers uh, of those conflicts. Um, and and here you can think of a handful of of, of those uh, of our our own recent vintage, right? Uh, withdrawing from Kabul after 20 years, only to hand it back to the Taliban. Um, and, and and Iraq and and starting in Vietnam uh, for for America, but also you know Afghanistan for the Soviets, right? So you can think of of, of a number of these kinds of lopsided uh, conflicts, 
Um, and, and they will be because the, the strong countries are predominantly Western countries, not exclusively, but predominantly. Um, one one can see this as some sort of statement on on the West. Um, and and what Richard sort of explores in, in this this uh, the Substacks piece, piece is why that is, um, whether there is something about war that very rich, uh, very powerful Western countries can no longer stomach. Um, whether winning any kind of war uh, is is something that again um, we we are sort of fundamentally incapable of doing anymore because we are unwilling to uh, look in the face the kind of brutality that would be necessary to win in some of these conflicts. Um, and then, so in in terms of uh, the, the the way that that Richard frames it, he says, okay, well, we can afford quote and i'm not sure that's true at all so in my view i don't think we can afford it uh, not for much longer but he says essentially the united states can afford to fight with one hand or even two hands tied behind our back the way that we did fight um with with ridiculous rules of engagement for example in that that put our own soldiers at massive harm's way that that, that was not necessary in iraq and afghanistan um israel to some extent uh will not be able to do that forever because their position is more existential than the United States. They're a much smaller country than the United States. They cannot fight like a 20-year war with one hand tied behind their back because they they will eventually, if, if this, this broadens into a wider war, they will eventually need two hands to keep themselves from being annihilated. And I think it's, it's a, a really important question. I don't really, you know, even I am sort of squeamish to look at look at the answer um, to this question, but the, but the question is whether civilized societies are actually capable anymore of of the kind of brutality that actually wins and finishes wars. Um, whether uh, this this is a result merely of which itself is a, a a big problem, right? But merely of this kind of of suicidal leftist impulse that that sees no. Um, moral difference, not only between Israel and Hamas, but between the allies and the Axis in World War II, that, that we are just as bad because we firebombed Dresden and we dropped a bomb on Hiroshima, all right, um, that, we're, that there's a moral equivalence to be found there, whether it's merely this sort of leftist overlay that prevents us from, from taking war as war, war is hell, um, and 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 being able to look that in the face, um, or whether there's something deeper, as Richard suggests, about the development of human societies and the development of wealth, um, and 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 a, a certain separation from the ugly realities of human conflict, um, that that makes it impossible for us to to actually do what is necessary, and instead we will inevitably lend. Uh, end up in, in these kinds of protracted conflicts without um, any real endpoint um, and, and any real like like victory because uh, we, we are, are continually tied to a set of principles that will never allow us to be uh, as, as, as brutal as our enemies. And um, therefore, what all we will accomplish is, is, is the kind of wars um, that have become historically common in the, in the last 60 years. Anyway, I think it's a very provocative uh, historical point. Uh, to make, I don't think it's. I think it's far from the only conclusion that one could could put on on that. Um, but I'm really curious for for what your thoughts are, and because I think it's 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 the kind of question that we're going to have to confront. Israel is going to have to confront it in a much more existential way. But one thing with, that I disagree with Richard about is, you know, it's obviously harming us as well. Uh, this this mentality that that war can essentially be conducted like a police operation um, and, and that we, we can uh, do it in, in such a, a technologically um, advanced way so as to to really minimize the impact not only to America at large, for example, um, but but also uh, to our enemies that we can conduct this kind of like surgical war. Um, anyway, I think it's a provocative point. I'm really curious what what the rest of your thoughts are on it. Um, sure. Uh, Klauswitz had a pretty simple formulation. To win a war, you need both the will and the means. Obviously, the Western countries have the means, but they've lacked the will in a variety of conflicts in a variety of ways. I don't think that necessarily is going to be true of Israel in this particular conflict. Um, the the will is pretty, you know, powerful given the provoc you know, the damning nature of the massacre. I mean, it's even bigger than 9-11, which gave the United States 
plenty of will to go into two different wars at once almost. So I think they have it. And moreover, what the, the actual mission they're trying to accomplish, which is uh, you know, probably going to be the occupation of about 140 square miles of territory um, and the installation of some sort of friendly government there or the governing it themselves. I think they'll probably have sufficient will to do that. Um, but I definitely, you know, this is also one of the reasons I found what Joe Biden, apparently there was some report that Biden was encouraging uh, the Israelis not to occupy Gaza. And it's like, well, I don't really see another alternative other than, you know, something horrible like dropping Moabs because, you know, their job is to make sure that there's no more Hamas in Gaza and they can't really accomplish that goal unless they're there. Um, so I, I hope that they have the will to do that. But yeah, as a general rule, I think I think the, the thesis is right that the West, as a result of gaining so much wealth um, and leftist over, the leftist overlay of policy, but also general humanitarian ideas, generally does lack the will um, to win these wars. I was going to say, I, I mean, I, I think it's obviously true that the will has changed. And in some ways, that's for the better. We would be stupid if we learned no lessons from the high tech um, obliteration that occurred during World War One and World War Two, which obviously changed the way. Uh, there are all kinds of new, I mean, Geneva Conventions, which are invoked all of the time um, in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Obviously, whether you think they're good or bad, they were an attempt to codify um, some big questions um, as the sort of liberal democracies emerged. Um, and so, you know, I think that's an entirely separate question. The United States has dealt with some of those questions very well, despite all of the opprobrium that comes from the so-called international community when they resist these types of things. But uh, I think it's, it's obviously true that the will has changed. What's interesting, uh, what I think is self-defeating uh, in the argument is uh, that the United States can afford to fight with one hand tied behind its back uh, be precisely because all of those other places that are now developing nuclear weapons have the will. Iran uh, still lives in the Stone Age, essentially, when it comes to the will for war. Uh, so does Hamas. Uh, so does, I, I mean, I think, I, I honestly think that's part of why Putin looks at the left as though, or at the West, as, well, uh, as though we're, we're foolish, um, because he you know, has been throwing bodies at uh, Ukraine basically to get territory back, uh, to get the Donbass back in a way that uh, does echo how people used to see these sort of territorial conflicts. Uh, and it's not, I think, thankfully, it's not how we see that right now um, when it comes to you know, the United States or et cetera. But uh, I just sound like Miss, sounded like Miss South Carolina in that viral clip where she was like, and the, does everyone remember that? That was great. Um, but uh, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that I think it, it it's a self-defeating argument in that sense. And also um, what happened in the, the first half of the 20th century was not normal. Um, it, it was probably more normal than the liberal rules of war that we've developed since. Uh, in that, you know, if you if you look at from Japan to Germany, uh, the way they to the Soviet Union, the way they felt about some of these questions um, is very different than what it is now. But uh, that was high-tech warfare like the world had never, ever seen before. And we've learned some important lessons since then. Um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't, you know, defend countries that have to deal with barbarians on their borders uh, that do not abide by any of these rules, have any interest in abiding by any of these rules, and do increasingly have the means that matches their utterly terroristic, bloodthirsty will. Yeah, so I think... Um, the combination of arguments of, in some ways, there's been an overreaction and course correction to horrors of the 20th century, which uh, may be motivated in in good faith, uh, but leads to less than even subpar outcomes exist. And then there's also the Western mind virus of the fact that you know, we are the oppressors, we are the colonialists, and that everything we do will lead to blowback and that the blowback is justified. And thus, consequently, we have to fight according to asinine rules of engagement that ultimately privilege the enemy. But there's a combination of all of those things are true. Uh, I would just say, and obviously this to some extent varies by what wars we're talking about, but as a general matter, certainly in recent decades, there's just been total confusion in our engagements uh, and inability to 
clearly define who the enemy is, what the animating ideology is, to define what victory looks like. Is the victory achievable? At what cost? Is it a cost that people are willing to tolerate? Um, what is, again, kind of the, the enemy's threat doctrine? And I'm thinking here, you know, to, so to put, make it a little more concrete, like global war on terror, for example. What war on terror is a war on a tactic. So that's a euphemism, obviously, for certain specific concrete enemies. What were those enemies and who posed the greatest threat? And then what's the best way to go about neutralizing that threat based upon what we know about what drives them? I mean, basic kinds of questions were totally lost and led to you know any number of cataclysmic outcomes, you know, and not just obviously the Taliban ultimately retaking power in Afghanistan, but uh, I look to Iraq, for example, Iran and Iraq balanced each other out to some extent, hated each other for a long time. When you pull Saddam Hussein out of power and then you take the Ba'ath Party out of power, you ultimately create uh, another Iran, essentially, in Iraq, the worst possible outcome. So you know, we can go through all of these, but I think at root, they come down to not knowing the enemy, not knowing ourselves, and then not having the will to do what is done given the nature of those enemies and also the projection that we engage in of, well, they're just like us, or ultimately, you know, if we treat them with kindness, they'll treat us with kindness. The proper hard-headed realist way to look at the world is it's a world of liars, thieves, and killers in large numbers. And so presented with those problems, what do you do to adequately deter those threats without becoming the very barbarians that you're trying to deter? And we have completely failed to adequately address those problems and those questions. And consequently, in trying to be humanitarian and do things in a way that's consistent with our you know, purported liberal values and such, we end up leading to protracted battles that lead to more bloodshed and ultimately, at best, push off problems that fester and become far worse later on, which is why I'm kind of all for the idea of, of uh, speak softly, carry a massive stick, if you're going to engage, engage in overwhelming, absolutely overwhelming force very quickly and then get out. But as a message to the enemy to stand down. And obviously, I would argue we had four years of this under Donald Trump and look at the result. And if we want to talk about current ongoing situations, striking Qasem Soleimani did not lead to nuclear war with Iran. Moving the embassy to Jerusalem did not lead to the Arab streets overflowing in mass. And, you know, we had Arab Israeli accords coming together in that environment. So that's a testament to what I would call a Gene Kirkpatrickian-like national security and foreign policy. And obviously, we have the exact opposite of that now. Yes, accords that may not have led to bloodshed had uh, the Biden administration um, had a, a spine quite as stiff as the Trump administration had on these issues. So we're now moving to final thoughts. I'm going to just go really quickly uh, because I have two fast points. One is that decolonization, there's been a lot of a lot of ink shed by some really smart people, including Chris Rufo, um, on this point recently. Uh, but obviously, if you genuinely, unless you like genuinely and want to empower Hamas and sympathize with Hamas, you don't actually believe in decolonization um, because you you just you just agree with the abstract construct of oppressor versus oppressed. You have no idea what the hell you're talking about because if you did, um, you would sort of recognize what you were supporting. And there are a lot of people in this country that do. Uh, sympathize with Hamas. I don't want to uh, downplay that at all. It's shocking the degree to what that exists, uh, the degree to how that exists uh, in this country. On the other hand, um, it is also shocking how stupid people are about their own purported ideologies that they have used to bulldoze American culture with. Uh, because if you really believe in decolonization, you do agree with Hamas that it's from the river to the sea. Um, and, and that is, uh, if you want to, you know, there, there's a shocking number of people who want to say yes uh, to that question and a shocking number of people who just have legitimately no idea that that's ultimately what they support while they're bulldozing our culture. Second point quickly is that the speaker battle, um, I think, is, is overplayed here in Washington, overstated here in Washington. I think people are disproportionately obsessed with it uh, relative to the public that I don't think at any given time uh, really cares that much who the Speaker of the House is, even knows that much about who the Speaker 
speaker of the house is. Um, at the same time, I would say it is relevant and worthwhile because uh, the sort of shock troops of the conservative movement on Capitol Hill are fighting really hard. And it's it's just interesting and important to see how that battle plays out um, because it's a question of whether they're fully allowed to, quote, represent their constituents in the House of Representatives, the New York Times interesting article uh, is sort of decrying that Jim Jordan would unleash the rage of the party's base voters. Uh, I think that's almost an exact quote from the article, uh, which is just amazing because again, these people serve in the House of Representatives. It is not the Senate. It is part of the constitutional Republican system. They should be allowed. In fact, they need to they are obligated to, quote, represent the will of their voters, even when it's unpleasant here in D.C. And I think that's partially what's uh, being tested. And these these members do kind of lay the groundwork um, for some big wins when they do happen, when they can happen. Um, and so I, I don't think you would have had, for instance, the Obamacare battle maybe going exactly the way it did if you had a Speaker Jim Jordan as opposed to a Speaker Paul Ryan. So th these things are important, even if they're not directly relevant, um, but it maybe is being over stated I'll, I'll turn this to the group now as well um i just maybe follow up on emily's point and say uh that th this to me is is a, a case of, of quote the woke more correct than the mainstream um when they say this is what decolonialization means they're they're correct right um it, it is the reflexive identification with uh essentially whoever is the uh, you know, higher in the their oppressed chart, um, and and the idea that any kind of of um, self defense or self determination by Western powers, or more specifically by disfavored races um, <laughs> within the domestic context, is illegitimate, right? Is is always and and forever illegitimate, uh, no matter how much violence. Um, is flowing the opposite direction. And and we know that they're not uh, averse to violence. We already knew that domestically in 2020, right? Um, we know that they they don't believe um, in forswearing violence as long as it's in, in favor of their protected oppressed classes and against those who they would deem um, as, as inherently the, the oppressors, whether that's, that's, um, you know whether that's that's uh, Israelis or whether that's um, you know white Americans uh, in the domestic context, whether it's Americans ourselves, whether it's Westerners. Um, th there there is a a there is a a logic to the madness, the seeming contradiction between you know the the, the obvious surface level contradictions of like the the queers for Palestine or whatever it is, right? Um, those are easy to point out and fun to point out, but I do think there is a deeper connection here, and that deeper connection is is the view that anything that is is pro Western, pro American, right, uh, is is inherently illegitimate. Um, and a final point on that is simply, I, I somebody who obviously supports very strongly, um, you know, some limited American uh, help. In, in in this situation, certainly, I think we should be uh, we should be Israel's friend, uh, as they have have been to us um, in in this conflict. Uh, but I understand some of the resentment from people, not because Israel is any less correct in this conflict, um, that but because I can understand a resentment that that you know we couldn't muster this for ourselves, right? This response that people are finally getting, you know, fired from positions and universities for, for they have been advocating, um, you know, in many ways, direct violence against Americans, against ourselves, uh, against white people. Right. And none of that engendered this kind of response. And similarly in Western Europe. Right. Um, <clears throat> now they may perhaps have a very long overdue, serious mainstream conversation about whether, you know, how many millions of migrants with these views they want to import. But but it says something that we couldn't have this conversation before this foreign conflict. And, and to that extent, I understand some of the resentment saying, why could we not muster the, these antibodies? I think Jeremy last week were ma was making some of these points, right? Um, why could we not muster these antibodies for ourselves? Um, and and I think that is it does go to some of the questions I raised in my segment. I think they they are the questions raised by Douglas Murray in his book, The Suicide of the West. Right? Um, 
at some point we are going to have to come into head-on-head collision with people who simply do not believe, even if we have a much bigger buffer of both wealth and geography than Israelis do, we are going to have to come into direct con- uh, contact with this question of what percentage of our society simply does not believe in our own uh, moral right to exist um, as as. America, right? Uh, and and uh, I think I think that's that's um, unavoidable in the same way that it's unavoidable in a much more kinetic way uh, in Israel right now. Um, I guess I'll go next. Uh, I'll keep it short. Um, first off, I mean, I think the best way to understand what you guys are all talking about is a kind of single factor morality, right? The idea that the oppressed people of Palestine are always moral in whatever they do, and the oppressors, nominally in this framework, are always guilty. Uh, and the best proof of that is if you are supporting the side that is massacring 1,300 people, including children and elderly, there's nothing you won't support them doing. So it's clearly there's only one factor of morality. And secondly, I'd like to shout out my old boss, who's been awesome on Israel uh, this whole week. That's Ron DeSantis. Um, his positions have been nonstop good. His, you know, first off, going after Trump for that ridiculous statement he made about BB, like there's no, Netanyahu doesn't need any nonsense about like supporting Trump in the 2020 election. It's not his job. Um, and it was ridiculous to, you know, that Trump can't get over the personal grievance um, from standing fully in support of Israel, getting people out of Israel, using state resources to make sure that they could get out, get American citizens could get home um, and not standing firmly against the idea of having any Gazan refugees, which we simply do not need. We don't need any Semites in our country. And, you, you know, you took a lot of pushback for that comment and uh, did not, you know, completely stood strong. And, and the real point is that's the way they've been educating their children in, in Gaza. They've been educating them to hate Jews. That is the public education in Gaza. There's no reason we should take a single Gazan refugee. Um, and they, you know, Arab, there are plenty of Arab countries in the neighborhood that could take those refugees. That would be much simpler. So uh, definitely... Good, a good week for the governor, and uh, I really hope people. You know, some some people might still be on the Trump train. I mean, clearly, like it seems like over half the country is at this point. But they should really take a look at Governor DeSantis if they haven't. Take another look; he's the right guy. So, on the point of the what was called at least a few years ago the intersectional alliance that had that we've now seen blow up on college campuses and across other elite institutions which bridges what on their face appear to be uh, antithetical groups in terms of Islamic supremacists and their sympathizers on the one hand, and then progressives, woke progressives on the other. Um, A few years ago, I wrote this book, American Ingrid, which was about Ilhan Omar as personifying this nexus that on its face seems illogical and nonsensical, but which in reality actually does make inordinate sense because at the end of the day, they share a common foe, which is the traditional Judeo-Christian West and its civil and its institutions. Um, and they're tactically okay using some of the same measures to get there ultimately and make common cause with each other against that enemy. But anyway, uh, check out my book, which talks about that, the takeover of the Democrat Party and many of our institutions by that ideology. And then also why kind of Israel is the key canary in the coal mine and the U.S. is second, close second place uh, in that horrible competition. Uh, But even more disturbing, in my view, is that this view prevails in this White House. It prevailed in the Obama-Biden White House. That's how you end up with a Rob Malley or a former Qatari foreign agent at near the top of the Pentagon or one of Rob Malley's apparent Iranian-inspiring comrades serving as a chief of staff in a critical Pentagon office. And in my view, that's how you have a policy that I have argued culminated in this jihad in Israel, which is let's elevate and promote Iran to the strong course and also support its proxies as well. And that goes from money, tens of millions of dollars, as a Tony Badran has documented at Tablet, tens of millions of dollars, to each year to Lebanese forces that are in effect Hezbollah. And then in addition, of course, millions of dollars to the Palestinian Authority that goes to pay for the slaying of innocents, and then to Gaza, which goes to Hamas ultimately as well. All rooted in a view that we want to make the Islamic supremacists the strong course, uh, rather than the converse, which is 
let's have an alliance or at least a partnership between Israel and Sunni Arab regimes that check the Iranians and allow the U.S. to reduce its exposure to that region and to stabilize that region. Uh, all gone. And we can talk about whether it's naivete or malice. To some extent, it is the way it is. Uh, and I would argue then, as a corollary to that, that we're going to see the continuation of that policy. So again, I'm I'm out there. I think that Biden, whatever rhetoric and moving of troops, and I caution that the moving of troops may well be about deterring Israel. In my view, there's a suffocating bear hug coming. It's the same bear hug that came with Barack Obama agreeing to the billions of dollars in aid annually to Israel to constrain it from potentially striking at Iranian targets to protect itself uh, during his presidency and then thereafter. Uh, this so-called Saudi-Israel normalization, specifically of the kind that the Biden administration was pushing, I believe also was meant to be a straitjacket to prevent Israel from deterring Iran. And I see the same thing coming here with this U.S. support that's already incredibly purported rhetorically very qualified and conditional. Let's not forget the first inclination of the administration twice via a State Department associated accounts was to call for ceasefires uh, and then to quickly delete those tweets. But the messaging was clear there. Beyond the ceasefires, there's been messaging of don't strike Hezbollah. There's been messaging of be really careful on how you're going to go about this supposed ground-based invasion into Gaza. Uh, as Will noted, you know, don't dare occupy it or even consider re-annexing it, etc. So whatever war is coming is going to be fought explicitly on the Biden administration's terms if it gets his brothers. And I suspect those are going to be incredibly constraining terms that may well prevent Israel from doing what it needs to do to protect itself. And again, counterintuitively leads to far worse bloodshed and chaos down the road. There's also, of course, the perpetual effort to de-link the attacks from Iran with administration officials twisting themselves in pretzels to defend that, uh, even above what the New York Times has reported about it. There's the defense of the $6 billion, the shiny object in all of this, that you know, not a penny of it is going to be touched by jihadists, essentially. It's also worth noting a really small point here, but when Blinken has been overseas, Blinken actually met with a group called Brothers in Arms in Israel, which was an, an explicit opposition group of IDF reservists who played a seminal role in fomenting the opposition to and protest of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu over judicial reform. And the Biden administration itself backed some of the left-wing groups in Israel that were pushing to topple BB. He's always been, the Biden administration has always been hostile towards this government and rhetorically opposed it, uh, wouldn't meet with Benjamin Netanyahu in Washington, D.C., so the notion that all of that policy is going to be thrown out the window, I think, is farcical. Again, I, I presented in the Federalist what the U.S. national interest demands, secure our homeland, stop, de basically decouple from jihadist or jihadist supporting regimes or entities or their partners. So do no harm. And then last but not least, give Israel the freedom to do what it feels it must to defend its security and its sovereignty as well. That, to me, is the national interest oriented response which allows Israel to do what it needs to do and ultimately redounds to the benefit of our interest and explicitly keeps American boots far, far away from a potentially explosive situation. So that's my two cents. All right. Well, on behalf of Ben, Inez, and Will, thank you all so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky. We will be praying for Israel and we will see you at the next NatCon squad. <laughs>